Well, hi, everybody. I'm back. <laughs> I've been gone for a little while. It's good to be together. It's been a long time since I've done this, at least here. I've been doing this other places. I'll tell you a little bit about that in a minute. But uh, let me start this time here with a couple of invitations for you. The first is that we are hosting a live stream service here for uh, the passing of one of our longtime pastors in Del McKenzie. Uh, so this is going to be happening on Monday right here in this room. That's the 27th. At 2 p.m., there'll be a, a, a service here, and there'll be a stand-up reception to follow. And so if you have any questions about that, you can call the office or there's more information that you need. But hopefully there'll be a number of us here that can celebrate um, just a very beloved pastor and friend and leader who played a really important part in this community for a long, long time. Second invitation I have for you is a pizza with the pastor. Uh, we do this event from time to time for people who may be newer to our community. Maybe you've been away for a while and, and you're just kind of getting back in with us and you may have some questions about who we are, what we do, all those sorts of things. And so we have this event for you. And it's going to be a great time to be able to be there and answer some questions you may have. We're doing this again next Sunday at 11.15. So it'll be after the Sunday service next week. Now, often our lead pastor Greg and Pastor Gabe, they kind of run this event and then some of us pop in here and there uh, to say hi. But next week, uh, Greg is gone. And unlike it said in the email we sent out this week, I am not the lead pastor. If you saw that, there was a little bit of a typo there. Freak our guy out while he's gone on holidays, right? So I am not the lead pastor, but Greg will be gone, and Brody is going to try and keep, uh, or yeah, Greg's going to be gone. Gabe's going to try and keep Brody and I in line as we run this event. Now, that may terrify you or excite you. I'm not exactly sure, uh, but you can go to uh, spac.ca slash pizza with the pastor and register for that. Just everybody come. And if you ask questions that we don't know what to answer, we will just make something up. And it will be amazing. And Greg, if you're watching, don't worry. It will be fine. What is the worst that could happen? The last time I was up here was with Greg as we talked a little bit about what I've been up to, uh, what I was going to be doing, which was uh, working with our national leadership at the Alliance Canada on some of our deep-seated convictions of the Alliance Church. We believe that our denomination, the Alliance Canada, has a significant role to play in the evangelization of the world. It's one of our deep-seated convictions. And so I was with a team that's kind of trying to figure out what does this look like for the generations ahead. This role, this part that we feel like we ought to play, leads us to go to some of the most difficult places in the world. Places where people have not yet had the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so I want to thank so many of you who are uh, praying for me, uh, probably also praying for my family. Uh, you know, Heather locked things down for just over three weeks with my two little lovelies, and it was busy for her uh, while I was out and away, so thank you so much for that. Uh, lots of important work happened in South Asia, and this church continues to play a significant role, not just in our own community, but in the work of our denomination all over the globe. Now, with the type of work that we do and the places where we do it, there's some challenges uh, talking about it in a setting like this. Uh, it's funny. Uh, sometimes when I go to do this type of work, I need to go and get various uh, shots and medications for the travel to some of these interesting places. And there's one pharmacy in town that I often go to that helps me kind of track down all of this stuff. And because I need these unusual things, when I go there, the pharmacist always has, you know, a particular set of questions for me because they're looking stuff in the computer that they've never seen before. And so uh, they always ask me this question. What do you do? 
What do you do? So I went in uh, to the pharmacy. I'm sitting in the little room. The guy comes in. He asked me the question, what do you do? And as he asked this question, I can see the other staff that are out there kind of like counting the pills and doing their whole thing, but they're all kind of leaning in, looking in the room. What is this guy up to? When I get this question in moments like this, I usually resort to some sort of short answer that's kind of like, do you actually care? Are you just asking because this is weird to you? So I give some answer quickly like this. I work at a nonprofit and I help with various forms of development around the world. And sometimes that's good enough. They give me the stuff, I, I carry on and we all go about our day. But other times they ask other questions and it leads to a great conversation about our church. So I give this guy the answer, the non-profit answer, and without looking away from the computer, he says, are you a spy? <laughs> They're all leaning down the hall. And I laughed. I said, no, I gave him the follow-up answer. I work at a church here in town, Shore Park Alliance. We care deeply about people flourishing, not only here in our own community, but all around the world. And he stops typing on the computer. He turns his chair. He looks me right in the face, and he says, that's what a spy would say. <laughs> and so, no, I'm not a spy, okay? I am not a spy. But some of the work we do is in very sensitive parts of the world where a lack of care uh, makes life very difficult for our partners on the ground. So I'm not going to talk a whole bunch about uh, that trip in this setting. Uh, I visited with a whole bunch of you already, and I'm thrilled to have more of those conversations offline. I was able to report back to our elders board uh, this week, and I'm very encouraged about the type of work we are getting to be a part of. And you'll hear more about that as pieces fall in place. Okay. Time for the message this weekend. Greg kicked off our new series last week called Books We Don't Read. <laughs> Books We Don't Read. Uh, there are places in the scriptures that get a lot of attention. Probably a lot of places that are your favorites. They're the types of places that get covered often. They are much loved. They're the most famous verses often exist in these parts of scripture. You know the famous verses, the ones that, you know, get put on posters or on wallpapers or someone gets tattooed on their arms, right? These are the types of places. But we believe that all of the Bible is useful, is important, and should be studied, so in this series, we're going to a much lesser-known part of the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament. We're talking about some of the minor prophets. These are individuals who have an encounter with God and then are tasked with speaking on his behalf. Now, often when we think of this idea of prophecy or prophets today, we think about someone who speaks into future events, things that have not yet happened. If you're from a more charismatic background, that might have been your experience. But when we look into the scriptures, we realize that Old Testament prophets in general are concerned much more about what, with, what has already happened than they are with what are the events to come yet. Now, certainly they make some statements towards the future uh, here and there, but generally that isn't what they spend the majority of their time talking about. Biblical prophets are primarily concerned with the relationship between God and his people. That's what they're concerned with. And the prophets often have a pattern that they follow as they address the people. They generally stand in front of the people of Israel and they make what are known as accusations, sort of these claims against God's people for not upholding kind of their part of the covenant, the agreement that they had with God. So they begin their interaction with the people by calling out the ways in which they have failed in their relationship with God. If you've been reading into any of these at all and been looking at the starts of these, there's not a lot of small talk in the Minor Prophets. It's kind of right in and things aren't going so well. 
And once these accusations are made, the prophet then calls the people to repentance. They say, okay, so now that we've established things aren't going so well, will you actually think about this? Will you actually let your life be changed and transformed and actually begin to live differently in light of what's happened? Confession and repentance. And then a major thrust of these minor prophets is is imploring the people to then recognize this and not only go, okay, we do need to make a change for today, but we actually need to make a change for the long haul, that we actually need to transform some things in our communities and commit to do this over the long haul, real sustained change. And then the prophets talk about the implications of sin because there are always implications of sin. And sin, often, that they are talking about, includes idol worship and the mistreatment of the poor. That comes up quite regularly in the minor prophets. And then the prophets often make reference to the day of the Lord. It's a day of reckoning where a holy, just God deals with sin. And in the book that we're looking at this weekend, uh, Amos, where it seems to be the earliest reference to this idea of the day of the Lord. And after all that's happened, then generally at the end of the prophets, there's a glimmer of hope. It's not always super bright. It's always not lots written about it, but, but it's there. It's always there. And the people are reminded that the reason his sin is dealt with is because God longs to be in right relationship with his people. And so everything God does is to bring the people back to him. So the prophets speak of the day where there will be restoration. This is the background. This is the framework for the books that we don't read. So with all that, let's turn our attention to the story of Amos. Here's the introduction to the book. This message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. This is what he saw and heard. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The lush pastures of the shepherds will dry up. The grass on Mount Carmel will wither and die. Okay, rough start here. Uh, what we, it's important to know about Amos is that he is not an insider. Okay? He's not from uh, the religious tradition. He isn't a guy who went to prophet school. He doesn't spend his days uh, you know, scribbling away on scrolls. He's just an ordinary guy. Uh, it's in chapter 7 that he describes himself this way. Look at this. He says, I'm not a professional prophet, and I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd. I take care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. Amos uh, lived on the border between northern Israel and southern Judah. If you uh, kind of studied the scriptures, you know this point in the history. There was sort of this separation that happens here. And it it took place about 150 years before these events. And so uh, Amos kind of lives right on this border. And at this time in history, economically, Israel's doing really well. This is a season where they're expanding. They're they're growing in their uh, kind of their influence. Uh, Some uh, historians refer uh, to this time as the Silver Age of Israel, like things are going pretty well for them. But under this outward appearance, there's this rampant injustice and idol worship. And Amos has had enough of it. He hears God's call to Bethel. And this book then is a collection of his sermons and visions and poems. 
So after this not-so-subtle introduction, Amos continues. Here's verse 3. This is what the Lord says. The people of Damascus have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They beat down my people in Gilead, as grain is threshed with iron sledges. So I will send down fire in King Hazael's palace, and the fortress of King Ben-Hadad will be destroyed. I will break down the gates of Damascus and slaughter the people in the valley of Avon. I will destroy the ruler in Beth Eden, and the people of Aram will go as captives to Kir, says the Lord. If you read you know, the first chapter and half of the next chapter, it's just this over and over and over. It goes on just like this above. I'll give you one more example of this. This is continuing in verse 6. This is what the Lord says. The people of Gaza have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sent whole villages into exile, selling them as slaves to Edom. So I will send down fire on the walls of Gaza, and all its fortresses will be destroyed. I will slaughter the people of Ashdod and destroy the king of Ashkelon, and then I will turn to attack Ekron, and the few Philistines still left will be killed, says the sovereign Lord. Seven times this is what's described over and over and over again. It's hard to read that. It's hard to reconcile that at times with all that we've sung and we've engaged with as we've looked towards this God who loves us and cares for us and there's these really hard parts of the scriptures and so we don't read these parts because they're a little tough. If you were to read these kind of seven examples of this, you would see they're all about a similar length now, the, the nation or the place is different, and their crimes are a little different, but this is the pattern that's followed over and over and over again. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, even Judah. And if you were to read through all of those, you might start to kind of drift off a little bit because I'm pretty confident that those places don't mean a whole lot to you. Uh, they didn't mean a whole lot to me the first time I read them. So what I want you to do is just kind of think with me for a second. I want to illustrate what's happening to you a different way. Now, most of us here uh, come from Shore Park or Edmonton. That's where most of our people come from. I know some of you come from other places. We love you. Don't be mad, okay? Just that's where lots of us are. Lots of you are watching online from wherever. Love you, bye. I can't help you with that. We're like, we're, most of us are from Edmonton and Shore Park. So I want you to think for a minute about the geography of Edmonton and Shore Park. Now imagine I came out here for a minute and I started going off and yelling about what a terrible place Stony Plain is. Bad place, terrible things in Stony Plain. They should face judgment. They should face hardship. All the problems and all the ways in which the Lord should judge them. And then I started railing on St. Albert. Same thing. All the ways that they were broken and in need of judgment. Some of you might go, yeah, I know a guy in St. Albert. It's terrible. Terrible person. What if I did the same thing and I went after Tofield and Vegerville? And then I laid into Leduc and Beaumont. And if I really wanted to get the crowd going, I described the incredibly long list of wickedness committed in Calgary. All the people love this prophet. But let me ask you this. What do you notice about the geography of the places I described to you in relation to us in Edmonton and Shore Park? What do you notice? A little louder, I can't hear you. They're around us? They're not us. <laughs> well, that is very true. They're not, they're not us. In fact, they're often looked at as the other. They're all our neighbors. 
north, south, east, west. They're all the places around us. And so what Amos does is he comes in, he stands in front of God's people, and he says, look at all of these people around you who have caused wickedness. They're all deserving of God's judgment. And you can imagine the people at this point seeing this shepherd rolling in, kind of telling them about God's judgment, going, you know what, this guy's all right. All of our neighbors, they've got all kinds of problems. See, that's what Amos is doing here. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, this is all of the nations that are around them. He says all of them, all of them have had their own versions of wickedness. Amos comes, proclaims judgment on the neighboring nations of Israel. But then something shocking happens in chapter 2. This is verse 6. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again. And I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. Uh Uh-oh. It's not just everybody else. It's the people of God. God's chosen people, the, the ones who have been blessed to be a blessing, they have also been wicked and unfaithful. And if you continue to read past this, here's what you discover. Israel isn't just lumped in with the other nations just kind of described in the same sort of framework that I've read to you already. No, it's not actually what happens. Israel is, in fact, accused by Amos about three times as much, three times longer, using much more difficult, harsh language than was used on the other nations. And it's this fascinating technique where Amos comes in and he says, yeah, everybody else has a problem, but what he leaves is this this center of injustice. Right in the middle of the bullseye, it isn't anybody else. It's actually us. It's God's people. And a central part of the accusation of the book as it unfolds is directed straight at the wealthy. They haven't just been ignoring the poor, but they've been selling them into debt slavery and then denying them legal representation. That phrase about selling for sandals and those sorts of things, people couldn't afford their basic needs and so they had to take on these debts just to live and as thus became slaves. If you carried on to the start of chapter 3, it describes the people of Israel as the entire family rescued by God from Egypt. And Amos is saying, are you serious? Did you forget your own history? The suffering, the crying out to be freed from oppression, this is your story And yet here you are, you game the system to enslave those who struggle amongst you. And Amos says, it's over. The Lord will not stand for this. And as I was thinking about this part of the story, like, I just had to come face to face with my own reality. Like, am I three times as concerned about my own sin as I am the sin of my neighbor? Am I three times more harsh on the way I live my life as a follower of Jesus, or so I claim, than I am on my neighbors who may never have ever claimed faith before? But I got all sorts of ideas on how they should live their lives. And I think Amos just brings us right to this point, and he's used this technique to bring the people of Israel to this point to say, how much scrutiny do you put on your own life? If you claim what you claim to believe, start there. And don't misunderstand me. I think we should have a prophetic voice into the community, the government, into our workplaces on the way that we believe we should interact with each other. 
I believe that following Jesus is, is not only the best path for my life and my family and certainly our church, but I believe it is the very best way to live for my neighbors, for, for those that don't yet know Jesus. And I want to do my very best to live out and model the difference that Christ makes every single day. But I believe it needs to be done so humbly to come from a place where our lives match up to this standard that we seem so eager to call everybody else to follow. This way of engaging the world has been the plan for a very long time. Here are those opening lines of chapter 3. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the entire family I rescued from Egypt. From among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate. Uh, other translations will say, I have chosen or I have known. From all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. God chose this particular group of people, Israel, from all of the families of the earth. This is an allusion to, to Genesis chapter 12. And this passage comes up often when we study the scriptures. It, I think, will probably come up often in this series as our, we work our way through. Because it's the part of the Bible where we see the game plan laid out. This is how it's supposed to work. God chooses a people for himself, and he promises to bless them. But this blessing isn't meant to be hoarded. It's meant to be shared. The people are blessed to be a blessing. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this struggle to live this out really. And honestly, it's something I think we all continue to struggle with today. And while I was off in a country far, far away, uh, I experienced absolute humbling by people who embraced their role in channeling blessing. Part of my journey included training and encouraging young believers and church planters. I planned and led conferences in, in some different locations, and I got to work with the next wave of leaders as they prepared to head out to serve in some of the most difficult places on the planet. And I heard the stories of these vibrant young men and women who have sacrificed a great deal to become a follower of Jesus. And I mean, over and over, I was astonished to hear the passion in their worship, their joy at being together, the celebration of, of what Jesus was doing in their lives and in their communities. And I've done this type of thing many times before, but every time, it's amazing, every time. As one of these conferences was coming to an end, the, the gathering of about 100 or so welcomed us to the front. They thanked us for coming uh, in lots of places of the world, lots of ceremony to all of this. We were handed a little statue that would help us remember our time together. Uh, this thing happens often. Uh, I have experienced all over the world. But what happened next, I was not expecting. One of the local senior pastors came forward and he said, what we teach here is generosity and to be a people of blessing. And he walked up to, to one of our team members and he pulled out an envelope filled with cash and handed it uh, to our group. And I was mortified. Like, my immediate instinct was to say no or to not try to accept it or to try to give it back. And I know culturally that is a very bad thing to do, okay? It's not what you should do. But I just had this 
horrible feeling because it just felt so wrong. Like, we're here to bless you. Like, like please, what you have is so little compared to, to what we think we have. How could you do this? And I'm like, I'm squirming. And then I looked out at the people. And I saw faces filled with joy. And I saw people smiling and clapping and cheering. And we all stood there in shock with nothing to say. And I thought about that moment a lot this week because I think I was taught a really important lesson about being a conduit of blessing. See, in that moment, what was on display for us was the unfettered commitment to be a blessing. Not trying to qualify it. Their generosity was not to be tempered by circumstance. They just gave because that's what the people of God do. They looked at what they had, and by our standards, it would seem like very little, but they sought for what it really was, the blessing of God in their lives, and rather than try to hoard it, they let it flow through them to us. And their faith has left deep impact on my heart, far greater than the sum total of what was (laughs) included in that envelope. And then we took that envelope and we gave it and passed it on to allow their blessing to flow through us to reach, reach a different people group. And it was like, man, this was just modeled to us in the most remarkable way. And it's one thing to do it over there, right? It's a whole other thing to do it here, both for me and for you. Because if I'm really honest with you, in the deepest parts of me, I still am more concerned about being blessed than I am about being a blessing. I fight the urge to hoard. Like, I still face the temptation to qualify my generosity. I still try to position myself to receive more than I do position myself to give. And this is what gets the people of Israel so lost, and it's what makes God so angry. Because the idea from the start is that God's people are to channel blessing, not hoard it, not hold on to it. And because Israel had this important role to play, and they didn't, severe consequences are going to come their way. And God says, you're going to need to be punished for this sin. It's what the most famous part of the book of Amos says. God makes it so clear. If there's the famous parts of this book, here it is for you. God says, I hate all your show and pretense the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. It's a hard thing to read after we've shared in a beautiful time of worship together. But we've prayed and we've sung and we've expressed our worship to God. And here we just got to come face to face and wrestle with this text that that actually doesn't mean anything and it's worthless and God hates it if our hearts are not concerned about the injustices in the world around us. This is why we don't read these books because they're not super fun to sit in. And they cause us to examine our own lives. God's far more interested in us living just and righteous lives than in the songs we sing. But 
because the people don't live this way, they don't heed Amos' message or the message of the other prophets, a judgment would come. This day of the Lord, and it would lead to the destruction of their cities. Forty years later, this is exactly what happens. You can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17. You can see that story unfold there. This is really hard to do, to engage texts like this, because they simultaneously point to the height and the holiness of God, the one we claim to worship, and at the same time, they make it abundantly clear about the the darkness and the depravity of the human heart, and trying to sit in this tension is unbearable. And so we don't read it. We just try to keep it out of mind. Now, Even in the darkest moments, the scriptures present a glimmer of hope. We're meant to feel the tension here. We're meant to wrestle with it. We're meant to squirm a little bit. But we're not meant to be left hopeless. To be honest with you, I mean, this whole book is nine chapters of hard, but it ends with five verses of hope. (laughs) But if you feel the weightiness of this text... You're supposed to. The inordinate amount of emphasis is on the challenge and the difficult. But it does end with five verses of hope. And before you walk out of here tonight, I want you to see these. This is the conclusion of the book. It's talking about this this future day of restoration. It says, in that day I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. And Israel will possess what is left of Edom. And and the nations, all the nations, I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken and he will do these things. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terrace vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens and they will eat the crops and drink their wine. I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land I have given. Says the Lord your God. Nine chapters of of destruction, of of buildings being destroyed and and all this kind of stuff. And, And then it concludes with this picture of rebuilding, repurposing. That from the ruins, God would build something beautiful. And if you noticed it, it's something beautiful not just for the people of Israel, but for all the nations. Just as was intended in the beginning. Amos tells of the day of this great King David to come. The one that later Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah would all later speak of. This new David would bring a completion of the plan of a right relationship between God and his people. And we know that Christ would come as the fulfillment of this hope, ushering in a new era of restoration. The call of Amos is to be a true worshiper of God. Doesn't mean you sang the loudest or you wore your best clothes to church, but to be those who sincerely and humbly consider our own lives before him. To generously live with our time and resources, to be those who seek justice and righteousness in the world, to be a people who seek to love our neighbor, even when that seems really, really hard.
If you know me at all, you know that uh, I am predisposed to positivity and optimism and fun and hope. And everything in me right now wants to leave us somehow in that place, but I don't think I should because it's really easy to fast forward through the hard, to just kind of get to that place where we feel a whole lot better. So before we head off, here's what I'd just like us to close with. I'd like us to just take a couple moments to just sincerely sit and and have a moment of prayer. If you're someone who isn't accustomed to praying yet, that's totally fine. You can sit and just be quiet there. If you have questions about this, love to talk to you about that afterwards. But for those of you who are followers of Jesus and prayer is is a part of your life, I'd like you to just sit and ask some questions of the Holy Spirit that he might reveal in you. Now, here's what you need to know. There is this hope, and God is not this angry God that's just so frustrated with us and wants nothing to do with us. He loves us dearly, but because he loves us dearly, sin must be dealt with, and ultimately, yes, that is taken by Jesus on the cross, but we still have a part to play in our day-to-day lives. We should be a people who are transformed, becoming more like Christ every day, and so a very healthy practice of Christ's followers is to examine our lives, to ask by the leading of the Spirit, God, what else can you pull out of me? What other ways is my life offensive to you? What other ways can I submit? What parts of my life have I not given you full control over yet? And the lifelong journey of the followers of Jesus is daily engaging in this practice and allowing him to transform us. So would you just take a prayerful posture right now, right where you're sitting, And would you ask the Holy Spirit? Ask him to show you where you might be withholding blessing. Ask him where you might be acting unjustly. Ask him to show you what steps towards righteousness might look like in your own life. So, Lord, hear the prayers of your people. I pray that you would make clear for us next steps in each of our own lives. We won't worry about our neighbor, the person sitting next to us, or somebody else in this room. At the end of the day, Lord, the bullseye's on me. Where in my life do I need to make a change? And God, we've sung together, and I, I know that that's meaningful, and it's good to worship in that way. We do it every week. But Lord, we confess that often, even in my own life, we don't spend as much time thinking about the rest of the week, and yet here you are asking us to be a people who love justice, 
who seek righteousness. And so I pray that for myself, I pray that for my friends here, that you would meet us in this place gently and lovingly, yet firmly. Show us what this looks like in each of our lives until we gather again like this. That we just don't come here and worship for, for an hour, but, but the rest of the week we worship you with our lives. And it will make the day we come together and sing and worship all the sweeter because we've lived it out all week long. Lord, for any in this place who are here and feeling um, disrupted <laughs> in a way that isn't from you, that feel uh, convicted with no hope, that feel like they're just at the bottom of their circumstances this week. Lord, would you give them great uh, courage? We'd love to pray with them and walk with them. We know that your, your desire is not to leave us in these broken places, but to walk with us, that you love a contrite heart. And so, Spirit, would you do an amazing work to convict us, but also to woo us towards yourself again? And would you give people great confidence that if there's further work to be done tonight or this week, that they'd step forward, that they'd allow us to pray and journey with them in the midst of this. So God, I confess, I don't, I don't like these parts of Scripture. I don't like lots of the hard words that are in there. But I trust that you've given it to us for a purpose. And so would that purpose come to fruition in our mix tonight? Be with us as we go forward into this week. We love you, Jesus. We submit our lives to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Bless you. Thank you for being here. I know this isn't the way that we always expect or hope things to come when we're in this place, but if there's a way for us to journey with you, if you're feeling a real sense of hopelessness, please come forward. We love to walk with you because that's not where we want to leave you, okay? God bless you. We'll see you back next week.